You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. We are uh, going to do a little bit of an Advent uh, sermon today, take a look into the purpose of Advent, the significance of Advent uh, inside of the story that we just had in our scripture reading. But before we do, I want to pray one more time as the Lord just orients us for this time of opening his word. So would you pray with me? God, thank you for the men and women in this room. Uh, thank you for your spirit being present with us. Thank you for uh, your word, your word that we get to learn from and that gets to be proclaimed. And so, Lord, would you make the meditations of, of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth be exceptionally pleasing to you? We pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, waiting can be hard, right? Um, waiting's difficult, especially for Americans. We don't love to wait, do we? Uh, we're not a big waiting culture. In fact, uh, just even this last week, as we're doing the whole Christmas thing, which I'm sure a lot of you guys are doing, getting the Christmas tree put out, and we're wrapping some of the gifts, and we're putting them underneath the tree, uh, my daughter Grace just came out, and she said, I can't wait to open those presents. You know, I, I can't wait. And she's like, I'm going to go open them right now. And so I do that, you know, that classic dad move, and I don't know if I really meant it. She probably could have called my bluff. But I said, if you open them, I'm going to return them. And she looks at me, and no lie, she just looks at me dead in the face. She goes, you go ahead and do that, because it's, it's better than having to wait. So for her, she would, she'd rather find out what the gifts are. The anticipation, the waiting was absolutely killing her to wait and to see what the presents would be. And so sure enough, they're still sitting underneath the tree, and, and we'll find out what they are on Christmas morning. But it's that moment of waiting. It's that sense of anticipation. Um, I remember a couple of years ago, we took our girls to, to, to Disney World, and, and you know, that's always an adventure in of itself, but this one ride we tried to get on, I think it was like uh, some Snow White ride or Seven Dwarves or something like that, and you look up at the sign, and it says 135 minutes. 135 minutes. The Snow White movie is not even 135 minutes. I mean, we could watch the whole movie for this 20-second ride, and in my mind, I'm just doing, is it worth the wait? Is it worth the wait? And we do that all the time, don't we? When we look at how we spend our time, what we invest in, what we're going to give ourselves over to, we ask, is it worth the wait? And there's another place that some of us can often find ourselves waiting. Uh, you know, I remember years ago uh, sitting at the hospital when my wife was having one of our girls, and she began to have some complications, and they rushed us out of the room, and I was in the waiting room, the waiting room of a hospital. And that's not a place often where you really want to wait, is it? You know, so much of the waiting that goes on inside of a hospital room feels so difficult because it's unpredictable. You don't know what's going to happen. You're waiting in anticipation for some type of news. When you're in the waiting room, you're short on answers. When you're in the waiting room, you're stressed out. When you're in the waiting room, you don't have any control. You're at the mercy of someone else as you wait for news. Friends, how much has 2020 felt like the waiting room for you? How much has it been filled with all sorts of things that are unpredictable, outside of your control, things that you can't do anything about that aren't going to be any different anytime soon, and it feels so stressful? In some ways, all of 2020 has been advent for us. Advent is really just a sense of anticipatory waiting. 
And you and I have found ourselves in so many weightful moments as 2020 has thrown us so many curveballs that have put us in positions where it's unpredictable, where we're short on answers, where it's stressful and we don't have control. Some of us have had major health issues due to the pandemic or other things that have gone on in our culture and you find yourself waiting. Some of you have had disruptions in your education or schools have looked drastically different or you've been bombarded with Zoom rooms and you're tired of it and you find yourselves feeling, this is stressful, I'm out of control. You find yourself, I'm just waiting, waiting for this to be different. Maybe you've been laid off and you feel like you have no control. You lost your job this year. And when you look at your finances, you feel like you're just waiting, waiting for whatever's gonna be next. Maybe it's parenting, maybe parenting, you've reached this classic impasse. Your teenager is, is in some ways going through that classic moment where everything you say is about as foolish as it can get. Or you know, maybe you're the student in this room and you're looking at your parents and you feel like they just don't get it and you're at this impasse and you find yourself just waiting. What do you do when there's really not much you can do? What do you do when there's not much to be done? And this is the posture of waiting. This is the posture where we enter into these moments even when we don't know what the outcome is going to be. And in these moments of waiting, in the moments of the waiting room of life where it's unpredictable, where we don't have control, where we're stressed out, we often wonder, where is God? God, where are you in the midst of this waiting? God, do you still care? God, do you still see me? And it feels like your silence should be interpreted as your absence. And Lord, have you, have you abandoned me? Have you forgotten me? And how do you maintain a weightful posture? Well, friends, the story we're going to look at today reminds us that the wait doesn't mean that God is done. The wait doesn't mean that God's done. And if there's any waiting room that you and I ever want to find ourselves in, it's the waiting room where we know that God has got us. And he's not absent. Even when the silence would make us feel like he is. So we look at this story, and if you have a Bible, feel free to turn to Luke chapter 1, but the verses will be up on the screen. And the verses I'll have on the screen are going to come from the NIV translation. But we come into this story with Elizabeth and Zechariah, and they have found themselves with two stories going on. There's a story inside the story, and that's what we're going to look at a little bit today. They've got their personal story, and then there's this cosmic story. There's this grand redemptive story that God is telling in and through their story. But they're wondering, can this be salvaged? God, can you fix it? It feels like we've been waiting a long time. It feels like we're in the waiting room and we don't have any control. And that's where Israel is as well. Israel is expectantly waiting. It's been 400 years since Israel's heard from God, since there's been a prophet. God has gone silent and the nation of Israel has to be wondering, God, where are you? Your silence feels like absence. So let's pick it up. Verse 5, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. In the time of Herod, Herod was an awful guy. This guy was about as barbarous, barbarous as you get. He was destructive, he was vindictive, and he hated especially Israel. And so he's a really bad man. He's trying to set himself up in juxtaposition, reminding themselves that they are under oppression. That's why Luke is telling us, he's saying this is the time and place Israel finds themselves in. Once again, they're waiting. They're waiting to be set free. They're in the waiting room, waiting to be delivered from oppression. 
was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. So what we find out is that Zechariah is a priest. He's a pastor. He's got a priestly and a pastoral heart. And his wife, Elizabeth, also comes from a ministry family. That's what it means when it says uh, Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Her, her, she comes from a ministry line as well. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. So the text tells us, it wants us to know that these two are, they're not perfect people, but they walk with a sense of integrity. Their overall posture is that they want to follow and trust God, even when it's hard, even when it doesn't make sense. And they're not immune from hardships. Just because, you know, Zachariah is a pastor and Elizabeth comes from a ministry family doesn't mean they're immune from the difficulties of life. In fact, they have not been able to conceive a child. And if you know anything about first century culture in which they find themselves in, this would have been a major major embarrassment and source of shame. Not only that, but it would have been an economic catastrophe because often your 401k was your children. And if you didn't have any children, that could lead to you being destitute once you were no longer able to work or provide for yourself. On top of that, it was often assumed that if you couldn't have a child, you must have done something wrong. And this was God's way of punishing you. So you could imagine how many tears had been cried by Elizabeth, how many prayers had been prayed by Zechariah for her infertility. Zechariah's name actually means the Lord remembers. So there's some irony, there's some providence that's already being built in that God would come and bring his story into an individual whose name literally means that the Lord remembers. Even when it seems like the Lord is absent because he's silent, Zechariah's name tells us that the Lord truly does remember. And we're told this so that you and I know that although they have been infertile, the Lord is not punishing them. They have tried with their best intent to follow the Lord. Are they perfect? No, but they've walked with integrity. So here's the scene. Here's what happens in verse 8. Once when Zachariah's division was on duty, he was serving as a priest before God. So his division, uh, and, and think about this, there's over 20,000 priests. That's a whole lot of priests, over 20,000. Zachariah's just one of 20,000 priests. And, and by lot, they would choose. They'd basically, by, by chance and happenstance, they would just roll dice to, as an effect to basically decide who would get to go into the temple, according to the custom of the priesthood, to burn incense. And, and would you know it, would you believe it, that Zachariah's name comes up? Now, this tips us off right away that, that there's no accidents, but it's rather providence when we see God working through stories in the Bible. And that also goes for the stories of our life. Often the things that we think are accidental can be moments of great providence in which the Lord's trying to position us and teach us and show us the things that he wants us to learn. So Zechariah gets to go into the temple and burn incense. And this is, this is like the highest honor you can possibly have. Imagine in your occupation or vocation, the highest possible honor, the greatest day you could ever have in your career. This is Zechariah's moment. He gets to go into the temple and burn incense. For many priests, you could go your entire lifetime without having this one moment. And so in verse 10, when the time of burning incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So imagine that the whole temple's filled with people praying, and they're gathering there, and Zechariah gets to enter in. 
And verse 11, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. I actually love sometimes, I actually think sometimes Scripture understates those moments because, friends, you have to get in your mind, if you're going to understand what angels are truly like in the Scriptures, we're not talking like a Hallmark angel here. We're not talking like a, a, a Valentine's Day angel with a diaper. We're talking like a Bible angel, you know? Like this is, this is usually when angels show up, people fall down in a sense of terror or worship. And Gabriel is one of only two angels named in all of the Scripture. And Gabriel shows up on the scene. Could you just imagine that? Zachariah thinks he's going in just to burn incense, and next thing you know, there's the mighty angel Gabriel. You got to think, even in that moment, Zechariah had to be like, what in the world is going on? This is the Lord, once again, coming to finally speak, and he speaks through Gabriel. This is what he says in verse 13. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. So look again there at verse 13. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Do you catch that? It kind of makes you wonder. You're supposed to actually stop and pause and say, well, well, what prayer? What prayer is Gabriel answering for Zechariah? Well, it has double meaning. This is where, once again, we see the story within the story. We see the story of Zechariah unfolding, but we also see the story of God that's interlaced and interwoven into the story of Zechariah for his good and also for the glory of God. Because by answering Zechariah's prayer, which you surely would have known, which you surely could imagine, he had prayed for years and years and years and decades, Lord, would you give me a son? Lord, would you, would you give us a child? Would you give, us, would you give us a kid? Would you do that, God? And yet also as a priest, as a faithful priest and pastor of the nation of Israel, he would have prayed countless times also for the deliverance of the people of Israel. He would have said, Lord, you've gone silent. It's been 400 years since we've had word from you. Lord, would you, would you speak? And in that moment, both prayers are being answered in this beautiful intersection of God's cosmic story and the story of Zechariah. Both prayers are being answered. And notice too, just as a side note, that even before John is born, he already has a name, he already has a purpose, and he already has a future. Church, this is why as, as Christians we stand so boldly in just realizing that our God is a God of life. He's the author of life. He's the perfecter of life, he's the maker of life, and that we love life. Because even in this moment already, before John is even out of the womb of Elizabeth, which wouldn't happen for some time, he already has a future. There are good works that have been prepared in advance for John to do, clearly. That's how big our God is. He works even in moments long before our world can even comprehend or see. So what we need to see, go on to the next section, as this story within the story continues to unfold, we learn a little bit more about what John will look like and what he'll be like. 
verse 15, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. This is so true. In fact, Jesus would go on to call John, this is John the baptizer. A lot of times you say John the Baptist, but he wasn't like a Baptist in the sense he was part of the denomination, but he got that nickname because he was baptizing people. So he's John the baptizer. And, and, and he, Jesus would call him the greatest man he ever knew. Can you imagine that? If, if Jesus says, this is a great man, then surely John has such an impactful ministry in front of him. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He, he is to never take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. Do you catch that once again? That the Holy Spirit is already at work in John. The Holy Spirit is on the scene to guide the story, to work out God's providence, but also already to shape John before he's even born. Isn't that incredible? The Lord's attention to detail, just how much he's drawn near to Zechariah and John and Elizabeth in this very moment, in this very situation. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. He will be a rescuer and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. John has such a beautiful future in front of him. His very purpose, he's being born to be a forerunner. He's basically a fullback. He's, he's coming to clear the way for King Jesus. What an amazing and ultimate call that John has upon his life. He gets to announce and herald the good news of the gospel, that Jesus is coming. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world would be one of John's sermons. You know, friends, sometimes I think we can't understand just how significant and how mighty this really is. Uh, just the sense of anticipation that Israel was living in and living under. You know, sometimes we just look at our Bible and it goes right from Malachi to Matthew. You know, you turn right over from the Old Testament to the New Testament. But if you wanted a better depiction of what their life actually felt like in this very moment, there should actually be like 400 blank pages in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. To give you a sense of just the very long waiting room that Israel found itself in. Just 400 years of silence, where once again that silence must have felt like the absence of God. 400 years of waiting and saying, God, when will you deliver us? When will you return? Lord, we know you haven't forgotten your people. We know you're not done telling your cosmic redemptive story. So Lord, we, we, we wanna hear from you again. We're eager, we're aching, we're longing to be delivered from the waiting room. God, can you fix this? That sense of anticipation. Where do you have anticipation right now? Where do you have a sense of, God, will you, will you make this better? Maybe it's a relationship that you feel like is a lost cause. Maybe you feel like it's a future that can't be redeemed. Maybe you feel like it's a past that you can't outrun. Maybe you feel like it's a financial mess that you'll never escape. And you find yourself just waiting. You find yourself saying, Lord, will you, will you deliver me? Lord, will you speak? It feels like your silence is your absence. John also got the incredible ministry to be a proclaimer of the gospel. As I said before, he was the first one to really proclaim the good news of Jesus to big crowds, to people coming and listening. And friends, you and I, we're invited to step into that very same ministry 
You and I get to, to follow along in the lineage of John. His legacy is he set an example for you and I what it looks like to be followers of Jesus, that we get to proclaim the good news of Jesus as well. That you and I get to stand up and herald to the world around us, to our friends, to our coworkers, to our neighbors. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You know, the last month at Stonegate, we've been talking about this idea of who's your one. That, that you and I, we may not be able to share the gospel with everybody, but we can share the gospel with somebody. That the Lord has uniquely and providentially placed and positioned you to share the good news of the gospel with people around you. So who's your one? And friend, let me just say this. There is no better time no better strategic thing you can do in this season than to think about how can I invite my one to, to a Christmas Eve service? You know, sometimes we get this, this, this talk going in our head like, well, I don't really want to invite them. They're not going to come. They'll just say no. They're going to be too busy. And, you know, studies actually show when most people are polled or asked or, or they do research on it, most people, if they said, if a friend invited me to come to church with them on Christmas Eve, I'd totally come. So what about that, friends? Would, would this week, maybe we would say, let's invite are one to Christmas Eve services. Let's make an opportunity for them to come hear the gospel. Maybe we can be the forerunner so that they hear the good news. We can step into that very moment that, that John was stepping into for Jesus. We can proclaim that good news. But you know, the story gets so much more interesting. Zachariah, like a lot of us though, he has his doubts. He really wonders, can things be salvaged? Can it be that easy? Lord, it seems like your silence has been your absence. The waiting room for, the waiting room for Zachariah has been really rough, hasn't it? Life has not gone as he thought it would. He's not had the family that he thought he would. And ministry has been hard. His job has been difficult as he's labored under Roman rule. So this is what Zechariah does. Zechariah, he, he asks the angel a question. Verse 18, Zechariah asks the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife, well, she's along in years. I like that. He actually doesn't call her old because he knows better. You know, don't, memo to men, don't call your wife old even if it's in the Bible. So he, he avoids that. He's like, I'm, well, I'm old, but she just, you know, she's along. We'll just leave it at that. And think about it in this moment, the Bible actually is sometimes funny, guys. You know, sometimes it's okay. Like, sometimes we miss the humor that God wants us to see inside of Scripture. And there's another humorous moment inside of this. Think about this. Zechariah is staring at an angel, a, a mighty angel, a powerful, awe-inspiring, awe terror-inspiring angel. And he goes, how can I really be sure? You got to imagine Gabriel is a little perplexed. In fact, we'll see that here in a second. But he's like, really? Really, I'm an, I'm an angel of the Lord, and you're really asking me. Friends, this is what tells us how powerful doubt and hopelessness can be inside of our lives. Think of even doubting Thomas, who said, I'm not going to believe Jesus rose from the dead unless I can touch his wounds myself. Sometimes our hearts get to such a place of being hurt or hopelessness that doubt feels safer. That we've given up hope that we'll ever get out of the waiting room of life, that we will ever find a way for something to be restored or redeemed. And you know, there's a, there's a part of me that really actually empathizes with 
Zechariah. You can imagine how many times he feels like he's opened up this part of his heart again, and this wound is felt very real of going, we want a child. My wife, I've just watched her cry tears. I've watched her, you know, face public shame. She's probably even been gossiped about every day. And actually, she's probably died a little bit of a daily funeral for years as she struggled with infertility. So he wants to know, how can this be? Do you have a place in your life where you feel like doubt reigns and rules? Where you feel like maybe it's beyond being salvaged or fixed or repaired or made new? We don't want to get our hopes up anymore. Uh, one of my favorite movies, Shawshank Redemption, uh, Andy is talking to Red, and Andy's just coming into prison, and Andy's telling Red, who's been in there for a long time, he says, you know, I'm, I'm kind of falsely accused. This whole thing's going to be sorted out before too long, and I'm going to get out in a little while. And Red has this classic line. He just says, hope is a dangerous thing. Hope is a dangerous thing. And maybe for a lot of us, we feel like hope is too dangerous of a thing. We've tried hope, and we've still been let down. So it's easier for us just to settle and sulk than to continue to anticipate and trust that God is going to move. Maybe there's someone in your life that you've wanted to see meet Jesus, and it's been decades. Maybe you have a kid that's far from God this morning, and you feel like hope is a dangerous thing. Hope actually even maybe feels like a privilege and a luxury that you can no longer afford. And so what do we do sometimes when we give up on hope? Well, we draw two really bad conclusions. Number one, I'll never be happy again. I'll never be happy again. Imagine how easy it would have been for Zachariah and Elizabeth to slip into that posture. Sometimes what we do in that moment, we just look and say, we, we, I'm going to give up. Life's never going to get better. It's never going to be, there's never going to be a sunny day again. And we just, maybe we, we start pining for a, a time that was rather than a time that is. We look back and go, man, in high school, it was awesome. You know, I was, I was playing football. I didn't have to pay any bills. And, uh, you know, I, 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 my metabolism worked. You know, all those things are, are going through your mind. Or if, if marriage has gotten really hard for you, you start to go like, you know what, I just remember when we were dating and when we were infatuated and, you know, we just stared into each other's eyes awkwardly at a coffee shop for three hours. You know, like you remember all those months, you're like, I'm never going to be there again. We start to believe those kind of lies. We get hopeless. It's a bad conclusion. Or another one is that this pain is pointless and that God can't redeem pain. That this pain is pointless and that God can't redeem pain. And that takes us down a very doubt-filled road. So what does Gabriel do? Gabriel responds to him. He says, I stand in the presence of God. So he's saying, hey, Zachariah, you want to know what my resume is? I, I work with God. Like, I'm in his presence. I'm, I'm God's right-hand angel. Do you get it? Do you get what I'm saying to you? That's my resume. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Once again, double meaning, good news that he's going to have a son, but good news, God's cosmic story of redemption has once again been picked up. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until this day happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at the appointed time. You know, friends, sometimes when we're in the waiting room, Sometimes when there's nothing we can do, we just need to be silent. 2020 has felt like one of those years for me where I've probably done way too much talking, where I've done way too much doubting, 
And the Lord just invited me in, will you be silent? Psalm 46 entreats us once again, be still and know that I am God. And friends, when, when we actually put ourselves in an anticipatory, hope-filled, waiting posture once again, it allows us to again see how God is truly working and moving. Sometimes God's just saying, will you, will you just be silent? I know there's a pandemic raging. I know there's racial strife. I know there's political division. I know there's economic upheaval. I know that people seem more divided and on edge and outraged and offended than ever. But we just be silent. We just wait for me to show up and work. Would you, would you, you Christian, you, you follower of Jesus who's filled with the Holy Spirit, would you just trust that just because God seems silent doesn't mean that he's absent? Doesn't mean that he's forgotten you. Doesn't mean that he's forgotten us. It's an invitation to, to pause and say, sometimes the very best thing you can do is to be silent. To stop fighting, to stop arguing, to stop grasping, to stop trying to control and to wait on the Lord. Our God specializes in the waiting room. Our God's a good physician. Our God heals. And so while 2020 and the world around us might tell us that everything is out of control and it's only going to get worse, and if you turn on cable news, trust me, you'll be filled with this spirit within five minutes that everything's falling apart all the time. Scripture is calling you. It's actually beckoning your soul to be reminded. Actually, no. No. Just wait. Wait on the Lord. Would you trust him? Would you know that he's still working? Friends, do you know that God works best often in our worst? So when it seems like it just can't get any more difficult, we can trust that our God is drawing more near than we could ever imagine. So Zechariah is invited, well, not invited, he's forced into a moment and a season of solitude. And outside of the temple in verse 21, people are beginning to clamor. They're, they're not sure what's going on. In fact, verse 21, it says, Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he had stayed so long in the temple. Zechariah, what happened to you? Did you fall asleep? You taking a nap? What's going on? Zechariah, where are you? They're wondering. It usually doesn't take this long to burn some incense. And when Zechariah comes out, he could not speak to them. So, so he's mute. He can't speak. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. Well, once again, this is just funny. Sometimes scripture is funny. He's doing like a, a priestly game of charades. He's like making signs. He's probably doing something like baby, no talk, you know, angel, who knows. But he's trying to communicate, and he's making signs. I mean, he's, he's doing charades right there. He's trying to communicate, but he can't. And he comes out, and when his time of service was completed, verse 23, he returned home after his wife Elizabeth became pregnant for five months and remained in seclusion. Maybe she was super thankful, actually, that her husband was silent for a period, too. So it was a nice reprieve. And in that moment, she offers this prayer, this, this prayer, this prayer of, of, of thanks. And this is what she says in verse 25. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Okay. So two truths for us to cling to that we've been 
touching on throughout this passage. Two truths for us to cling to. Uh, and then we'll be done. Number one, the ache of Advent is good. The ache of Advent is good. Uh, an ache is defined as some type of suffering from a continuous dull pain or an intense sadness. Advent, friends, this, this moment of anticipation, this waiting room reality that we've been talking about throughout this morning is, is, is meant for you and I to be in touch with the groanings and the longings of our soul that the world can never fulfill. No matter how much we try to shove in another accomplishment, another possession, another relationship, another experience, none of them are ever going to satisfy. And Advent, first and foremost, is meant to remind us of the ache that is deep within. And if you are not a Christian, the ache that you have it will only be satisfied by Jesus, by the good news of Jesus Christ. St. Augustine said this, our hearts are restless until they find rest in Him. We can spend all of our lives looking for something that will satisfy looking for something that will finally make that ache go away, but it can't be found outside of Jesus. And so the ache of Advent is good. It's meant to remind us that God has made us for another world, but he's also at work in us, that we have appetites and affections that can't be satisfied by this world around us, and therefore that's how we know we're made for another world. In Romans 8, Paul says this, even, even on this, on, as we're waiting on the second coming of Jesus, and that's where you and I find ourselves, friends, as followers of Jesus, we're waiting in Advent still, right? We're waiting for our King to return. We're waiting for King Jesus to come back and to put everything to rights. Who often looks around at this world and goes, that's not the way it's supposed to be. That type of betrayal, that type of abuse, that type of addiction, that type of illness, that type of inequality is not supposed to be. It's not supposed to exist. That is us groaning and longing for a renewed and restored world. And Paul says, he reminds us that we groan together. You and I, as the people of God, we're groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption to be completed, for our, our dad to show back up and to put all of the world to rights. But friends, in that moment, this is why the ache is, is really good for you and I here and now. God uses circumstances to shape us, but he doesn't shape our circumstances to suit us. Let me say that again. God uses circumstances to shape us, but he's not often using our circumstances to suit us. You know, God is much more concerned about your holiness than your happiness. And often what it takes for our holiness, for us truly to be conformed into the image of Jesus, for us truly to become more like Jesus, are gonna be seasons, long seasons, where it's not necessarily happy. Think about this, friends. Patience takes long suffering, doesn't it? If you truly want to grow in patience. Gentleness often means you've had moments of someone being harsh with you or abrasive. Peace, a true peace, an inner peace, takes wading through significant storms. Self-control takes moments and bouts 
of temptation. Forgiveness, to truly practice and apply forgiveness, like we talked about last week, takes being wronged. And gratitude only comes sometimes when we go without. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, said this, when God lays men upon their backs, then they look up to heaven. God smiting his people is like the musicians striking upon the violin, which makes it put forth a melodious sound. How much good comes to the saints by affliction. When they are pounded, they send forth their sweetest smell. Affliction, suffering, waiting on God is a bitter root, but it bears sweet fruit. Friends, may you and I be people that don't avoid that bitter root. May you and I be people that are willing to bear sweet fruit through our afflictions. John Piper puts it this way. He says, often we'll have to eat the fruit of suffering as there are nutrients in the fruit of suffering that can't be found anywhere else. Imagine the character that the Lord was able to form in the life of Elizabeth through her barrenness. And friends, if you're in a moment right now where it feels like God is silent and it feels like God is absent, I'm just telling you he's not. He's not done with you. He hasn't abandoned you. And that very thing that you think, maybe maybe it's singleness. Maybe you want to be married. Maybe you are struggling with infertility. And maybe you do feel like a relationship's never going to get better. But it's in that moment where the Lord's cultivating his grace and cultivating godly character in you. Okay, second truth. And we'll land the plane here. Second truth. And we've seen this all throughout the passage. Your story is bigger than you realize. Your story The story you're living right now is much bigger than you realize. Sometimes I think we get the impression that our lives are much more like just isolated atoms floating around in space and there's not an impact that we really have on others. Or we get this crazy notion that unless we're doing these incredibly big dramatic uh, things on a platform where there's tons of notoriety that it really doesn't make an impact. But I would argue every single one of you in this room has been impacted in the most significant ways by ordinary people in your past. Your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents. And it was their, their ordinary actions, their everyday lives that shaped your life. That, that's the reality, that, that, that our stories are part of stories that have come before. They're part of stories that have gone on. And sometimes I wonder what happens sometimes when we maybe just want to hit the eject button on the waiting room too soon, when we don't want to give that, that, that pause, that waiting for God to work, where we give up on a sense of anticipation and hope, joy-filled anticipatory hope that God can still move. William Carey was a a missionary back in the 19th century, and he was a missionary over to India. And in the first seven years that he was there, one of his his five-year-old child, one of his his kids, his five-year-old son died. He faced many bouts of sickness and illness. His wife eventually developed a mental illness, and she eventually tried to stab him with a knife. I mean, that's a bad day. That's That's not good. For the first seven years of his ministry, you know how many people came to Jesus? One. One. 
And William Carey said, though, I will stand surely here because I know the Lord stands with me. And he stood and he stayed and he continued to minister in spite of the obstacle, in spite of the waiting, in spite of feeling like God was absent. He stayed and, and in India over the, the, the next couple of decades as he continued to give his life to the people of India, he would have one of the most profound impacts on people being introduced to the gospel in India. He would go on to translate the Bible, start schools, recruit other missionaries, and see many other people begin to meet Jesus. But just imagine if he would have given up in year two, year three, year four. Where are you? Where are you prone right now to give up? To feel like your story doesn't matter? To feel like I'm just going to pack it in. I'm just going to give in to doubt. I'm just going to believe that God is done, that his absence, that, that he's, his silence means he's absent. Friends, here's how we know. Here's how we know our stories are so much bigger than we could ever realize. All throughout this story, the bigger story is at fold. And so while John the Baptist is a, a, a son that's being given, there's a greater son that was given to the world so that sins would be removed, and that was Jesus. And it says right there too, Elizabeth, in verse 25, she says, my disgrace would be removed my reproach would be removed among the people. She's right. Finally, those in her social circle would stop looking at her with disdain or judgment or lack of favor. But more importantly, her son, this story was also part of all of our disgrace being removed. It wasn't just Elizabeth's disgrace that was being removed. It was my disgrace that was being removed in this story. Because the bigger story is that this was leading to the coming of Jesus, who would remove all disgrace from all people in all places at all times. And that's the good news of the gospel, that you and I, we don't bear our reproach anymore. We don't bear our disgrace because Jesus bore it upon himself on the cross. And that's how we know that God is not absent anymore, and we know that he's not silent anymore. Because the cross screams loudly to a watching world that God loves you. John three sixteen, we all know it. For God so loved the good people those who have their act together, the religious, the smart, the, no, no. For God so loved the world, those that are far off, those who have messed up, those that think they have gone too far, those who have doubts, those who have, feel like they don't belong. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life, would have eternal life. So how about you, friend? Where are you going to put your hope? Better not be your bank account. Let's see what happens to that. Better not be in your health. A pandemic could come along. But you could put it in a person. You could put it in the person who rules and reigns over everything. The good news of Advent is that even if our wait for restoration or something to be new is beyond this lifetime, it's not beyond eternity. There's a day coming when everything will be made new. And so, this is our waiting room moment. And as we wait, friends, let's proclaim to the world around us this hope that's found in Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, we know that you are not absent. 
In fact, you're so near that right now you're working in our hearts. You're convicting us of sin. You're calling out the places where we maybe feel hopeless, where we feel discouraged, where we feel like you've forgotten us. And Lord, would, would you give us a sense of eager, hope-filled anticipation again in this moment of Advent? Being reminded that we can put all of our hope in you. That you're a God who loves, you're a God who redeems, you're a God who restores. That you're a God who loves us so much, you would get off your throne, you'd come to this world. That's why we call you Emmanuel. In this season, you are God with us. And you're with us right now. So, Lord, allow us to receive the hope that is found in Advent as we groan and eagerly await your second coming. For those of, it, those of us in the room right now that are even just wanting to give our lives to you, give our sin over to you, put our hope and our trust in you, Lord, would, would we just do that? Would we trust you with all of our lives? Would we put all of our hope in you knowing that that's the only place hope can be found? It's the only safe place. Pray these things in your name. Amen.